While the stream, verse 7, dried up because there had been no rain in the land, Yahweh told him, Get up, go to Zarephath and Sidonia to territory, and live there. I have already told a widow who lives there to provide for you. So he got up and went to Zarephath, and when he went there through the city gate, there was a widow gathering wood. So now I know I've kind of knocked Elijah hard, and I'm only doing that because the narrator does. But at the same time, the narrator is also lifting Elijah up as a great man of God because every time God commands him to do something, he immediately obeys. And so at that point, that's removing all suspicion. Now at this point, you can say, okay, he truly is a prophet of God. He truly is a godly prophet. He is always obeying the command of God, and especially without hesitation. God commands, he immediately obeys. God says, go over there, he immediately goes. So at this point, I'm restoring everything you ever thought about Elijah. (laughs) He is a good prophet. He is a godly prophet. He's obedient to God. But at the same time, I'm also reminding you that the way that he was introduced also is trying to overemphasize that he's not a perfect man either. He's not a perfect man. And this way we need to embrace the tension, just like David. David was an incredibly godly man who obeyed God most on most cases and had a heart for him, but he was definitely not a perfect man and screwed up multiple times. And so that's the way you need to see Elijah is when we read through Elijah's story, there's going to be some places, especially with Elijah, you're going to be like, I don't know what to do with this. It sounds really good, but at the same time, it's like, ah, there's nobody else who's like this. And, and you're left with this feeling of like, he's godly, but I don't know if that's the righteousness that God really wanted either. And you should feel that because you should feel that about every human. You should feel that about me. Hopefully you feel the golly part, but <laughs> you should feel that mixed feeling that there's something wrong with me and there's something good with every believer. That is true. And the narrator wants you to feel that. So he obeys, but knows something too. He's going up to Phoenician territory. And who is he going to take care of? A widow and a foreigner. What is God saying here? That the Gentiles, now the word Gentiles is not used in the First Testament. Because the word Gentile basically is the Greek word for the nations. It's any nation that is not a Israelite. Remember the Tower of Babel, all the nations came from the Tower of Babylon. And the nations got their beginning by building a tower to make their own name great. And at the Tower of Babylon, God disinherited all the nations. And he said, you are no longer my chosen people anymore. Adam and Eve were the chosen people of God. Therefore, all their kids were the chosen people of God. But the Tower of Babylon, he said, after you've done this, you are no longer my chosen people. I'm disinheriting all humans. And then the humans produce the nations. And the nations build ungodly empires. And that's the whole point of the Cain story. Then the only nation that is not in the table of nations of chapter 11 and chapter 10 is Israel. And so in the book of Deuteronomy, God says, unlike all the other nations, who are not a part of me, Israel, O Jacob, you are my chosen people. You are my inheritance. So God then chooses a new nation to be his chosen people, and that's Israel. But Israel was supposed to be a blessing to all those nations to get people to defect from the nations and join Israel. But they failed to do that because they were ungodly. And so the judgment that God is now bringing on Israel is, I am now disinheriting you, so to speak. 
I have led a new exodus with a new prophet, and nobody's going. And it's a type of disinheritance. Now, he's not going to completely disinherit them like he did the nations because of the Abrahamic covenant. But he can temporarily disinherit them, just like he will never completely disinherit the kings of Judah because of the Davidic covenant, but he can temporarily disinherit them in a judgment kind of a sense. So in this sense, we're just like the kings of Judah are in time out, but they haven't been completely kicked out of the house. Judah and Israel are now in time out, but they're not completely kicked out of the house. So the nations, he put them in time out and kicked them out of the house. And he chose a new son, Israel. With Israel, he made a covenant promise with them that he never abandoned them. So he's going to put them in time out, but he will not kick them out of the house. They're in the spare bedroom. And eventually they'll be brought back. And that's important for you to understand because as we go through the prophets, they'll use a lot of language like, you're not my people anymore. And then God will say, but you're my people. And you're like, which is it, God? <laughs> it's they're in time out. The best illustration I've ever been able to come up with is they're in time out in the spare bedroom. That's, that's where they are. They're not in the family room playing bingo or whatever, <laughs> Pirates of Catan, and, wa- and watching movies on movie night and watching fires. They're in the spare bedroom listening to it through the floor. So that's where they are. So that's what he's trying to paint here. But what he's now metaphorically saying is the nations, which will be the later New Testament word Gentiles, is the new chosen people. God is going to the nations. And he's doing exactly what Israel is supposed to do. So he's put Israel in time out in the spare bedroom. He leaves the house and goes to the next door neighbor kids. And he says, come, it's movie night. My kids are in time out and I've got pizza and popcorn and a movie on. Come in. And they all come in and join. And your kids are upstairs listening like, wait a minute, that's not right. Now, I know you kind of laugh, but that's exactly the parable that Jesus says when the rich man, the king, has a banquet, and he invites all the people of the land to come. And they're like, oh, no, I'm too busy, and da 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 And he says, okay, forget you. And then he goes to the lepers, and the poor, and the outcasts, and the foreigners, and they all come in droves. And that's exactly the point that God is making. So instead of banquet, it's movie night. And that's basically what God is now doing here. He's like, okay, my people don't want to have movie night with me. I'm going to the widow, the foreigner. And she's my new child. And we're going to have movie night with her. And that's the point. And then remember what Jesus said. He said, oh, Israel and Nazareth. Remember, they're like, oh, wow, you're a great prophet. How did you learn to do this? Oh, my gosh, he came from Mary. How in the world did he become a great prophet? And then Jesus says, behold, you are just like the people in Elijah and Elijah's day. And just as there was not one person in all of Israel who could be found, who accepted and followed God during Elijah's day, Elijah abandoned them and went to the foreigners and the nations, and they accepted them, so it is today. And at that point, they got ticked, and they tried to throw him off the hill and kill him. Because he basically said, you're like Ahab's generation. And because they all knew what it meant for Elijah to go to the widow. It was a new exodus where no Israelite followed and the widow becomes the new chosen people. Not literally, but metaphorically and kind of literally because the widow, the foreigner was supposed to be the chosen people, invited into the chosen people. 
And this is the imagery that's being painted here, and it's reinforced by Jesus and the Second Testament when they keep making references to this time period, saying it's happening again. It's happening again. So you need to understand this Moses idea that is being developed here, that he is going that. Now, not only that, he's going to Phoenician territory. Remember, Phoenician territory is the heart of Baal worship. And just like Baal has invaded his promised land and corrupted it, Yahweh is going to invade Baal's home territory and begin to redeem people. And the famine affects Baal's territory just as much as it affects Yahweh's territory. And so this becomes a polemic, a battle between Yahweh and Baal of what God is better. And the first contest is who can make it rain. So Yahweh says there's no rain, which means Baal has to be stronger than him by making it rain. And Yahweh has to be stronger than Baal by making it not rain. And the fact that it doesn't rain for three years means that who won that contest? Yahweh did. Now we enter into a next level of the contest. And that is the widow. Verse 10. So he got up and he went to Zarephath. And when he went through the city gate, there was a widow gathering wood. He called out to her, please give me a cup of water so I can take a drink. And as she went to get it, he called out to her, oh, by the way, please bring me a piece of bread. She said, as certainly as Yahweh, your God lives. So she's a pagan. She's a foreigner and a pagan. I have no food except for a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. Right now I am gathering a couple of sticks for a fire. Then I'm going to go home, make one final meal for my son and myself. And after we have eaten that, we will die of starvation. So she's gathering up and she's basically, he says, Hey, the guy who's been drinking water and eating bread for a long time at a ravine and God's been providing for. Meanwhile, this widow who has no husband, who's a poor person, has very little money. Most people in her culture think that she's cursed superstitiously because the gods killed her husband and she or he committed such great sin that they deserved it and therefore don't touch them or be near them because it might rub off on you. So she's lonely, isolated, poor, oppressed, hungry, starving. She has one more meal for her and her son and Elijah, who's well fed by God, says, yeah, give me your last meal. And she shows her desperation by saying, this is all I have left. We're basically just going to eat it and then we're going to starve to death. But she also stabs him, so to speak, and says, and the reason that I'm starving to death in the middle of a famine is because of your God. Because this news is spread throughout the entire land. Now, from her perspective, think of it this way. She's been worshiping Baal her entire life. And then all of a sudden, Baal kills her husband in judgment. But just like Abraham, who's been worshiping the pagan gods his entire life, at the age of 75 years old, he still has no kid because the gods are judging him and are against him. And because the gods don't talk to him, he doesn't know what sin he's even committed for the gods to be angry at him for not to have a kid. And the same way the gods don't speak to her. So all she knows is that Baal is against her and some kind of judgment, and she doesn't know what she's done wrong, and Baal punished her or her husband by killing him. And now her first god has killed her husband. And now the second god that's been introduced to her life is about ready to kill her son and her both. She has no reason to want or respect or follow any god right now. 
And there is almost a, an anger, a bitterness, and a pain when she says, as surely as your God lives. My God that I followed my entire life killed my husband, and now this God that came to me and spoke to me is killing my son and killing me. And Elijah says, so, so yeah, that bread, give it to me. Now, that sounds incredibly insensitive. But why would he ask for her bread? Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go and do as you plan. But first make a small cake for me and bring it to me. Then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be empty. The jug of oil will not run out until the day Yahweh makes it rain on the surface of the ground. He says... This won't be your last meal. If you make that for me, then go and make a meal for yourself. What is he asking her to do? Trust him. Trust this other God. Not only that, she's, uh, he's asking for her first fruits. This is your last meal. Put it in the offering plate. And God will write you a blank check for the next three years. Now, we don't know how long, right at this point, how long that flour and oil is going to last. But later in chapter 18, it will say three years later. That means that little jar of flour and oil lasted for three years. Every time she poured it. So Elijah's asking her to step out in faith and say, you have every reason to be bitter and angry and abandoned right now. But if you give this as a first offering, first fruits offering to this God, you will not run out. I promise you. Now, for her perspective, what does she have to lose? If she doesn't do it, she's going to die. If she does it and Yahweh's wrong, she's going to die. And has she ever had any God speak to her? Yet this God has. So all of a sudden, for the first time in her life, a God has shown up and spoke to her. And a few days later, and I don't know exactly how many, a prophet shows up exactly like God said. In a way, Elijah's arrival is the sign. Is the sign for her. And so she decides to do it. A foreign pagan woman who does not know the law of Deuteronomy, has not heard all the stories of Israel her entire life, says... She went and did it as Elijah told her. There was always enough food for Elijah and for her family. And the jar of flour and oil was never empty and, the, and never ran out, just as Yahweh promised through Elijah. Now notice what's going on there. She acts in faith and God rewards her. But notice the phrase here. First, the word of God did not fail. This is a repeating theme. Just as the word of God had said just as the word had predicted. It was fulfillment of the word. But also, for the first time ever now, we have a blatant Elijah speaking in the name of God and God blatantly fulfilling the prophecy. And at this point, there's no doubt that Elijah is of God. Even though you know, yeah, but he might be a little arrogant. Now, this is huge. Because just like we've seen this theme in a little way throughout Samuel, now it's really going to emphasize that the foreigners are responding with more faith and more obedience, with less 
revelation than Israel has ever had. And this is what Jesus is referring to. This is also why Jesus will come along and say, Woe to you, Jerusalem, for your judgment in the end days will be greater than Sodom and Gomorrah. Because Sodom and Gomorrah had very little revelation from God, and they sinned. But Israel had full, specific, divine revelation from God, and they became worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. She is the new Israel, so to speak. What's going on here with Baal? Remember, Baal is the storm god. So not only can he not make it rain, and remember the idea is that Baal would always fight the god Moat every year. And Moat was the god of death. And he would take Baal and imprison him in the grave alive, bury him alive in the grave. And because Baal couldn't send his rains anymore, the crops wouldn't grow. And then Anat, his sister, would come down at the end of the winter and free him from the grave, and he could come out and send his rains, and there came spring and summer. And so like the Persephone-Demeter story of the Greeks explains the seasons, the Baal-Mot story explains the seasons here. So when the Baal, when you had a famine, they believed that Baal was in the ground even longer. So what you have now is in Baal's own territory, he can't make it rain which means currently right now he's imprisoned in the grave by moat. Yet Yahweh freely walks into the land and provides crops, flour. But knows what God does. See, Baal is a nature God, which means Baal can only make your crops grow by sending rain. He has to follow the laws of nature in order to make things happen. So the only thing that Baal can do is send the rain. And then it has to rain and rain and rain and rain and rain for months and months and months and months. And it has to have sun, 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 because he's also the god of the sun sometimes. And then slowly over time, the grain will grow naturally. And then it will grow, and then you have to harvest it and cut it down in your own works and your own efforts. And then you have to grind it in your own efforts and bake it into bread. And there, finally, Baal is provided for you. But Yahweh walks into a barren land with no rain and Baal territory on his home court, and he makes the flour and the oil produce without the laws of nature. And he's showing that I am not a nature God. I can literally step outside all the laws of physics and nature and just make things happen. I can speak the flower into existence through my word, just like I did at creation. And so not only does he defeat but awe in his own game, but he goes way beyond them. This is like saying, I bet you I can beat you in a race car game, or a race car game, a race of cars. And they're like, whatever. And then they're having to like fix their cars and get all ready and that kind of stuff. And you snap your fingers and a car appears and, and then you snap your fingers and it's at the finish line, you're done. Not only did you beat them, but you went way beyond anything that anybody could ever imagine. And this is what Yahweh is showing. He's going over and beyond that. And so what God is doing here is he's demonstrating his absolute sovereign transcendence over all of creation. But there's something else going on here. He went to the most insignificant person, almost the most insignificant person in all the world. She is a widow cursed by the gods who is a poor person and a foreigner. The only thing that can make her worse and more insignificant is she was a prostitute on top of that, like Rahab. And so once again, she is a new Rahab. 
And God is going to her to show Israel his love for the insignificant, his love for the oppressed, his love for the abandoned. And once again, Yahweh is showing himself absolutely unique from all gods because he is the only being who is absolutely all-powerful and also intimately and relationally involved in your life. And the widow becomes an incredible story of God's sovereignty and love for the culturally insignificant. And what he's saying to Israel is, this is what it means to be the image of God. This is what you should have been doing all along. This is what you should have been doing all along. And this is why God in Isaiah will later say, Isaiah will look at him and say, Yahweh, what are you doing? And Yahweh will say, I am trading the nations and I am judging the world. And my right hand is working my own salvation. And I am ticked that no one goes with me and I have to do it all on my own. And what he's saying is not that nobody, he needs help. But what he's saying is that you were supposed to be right beside me, Israel, working salvation with me. And I'm ticked and I'm stomping on you like grapes because you didn't go with me and redeem the world. Instead, you became like these evil Canaanites. And Isaiah is speaking specifically to this and many, many other incidences. God wants to use you, but if you don't join him, he will still move ahead and expand the kingdom of God without you. The question is not whether the kingdom of God will be expanded or not. The question is, will you reap the privileges and the joys of participating with him? That's the real question. And avoid the judgment for disobeying him. After this, verse 17, the son of the woman who owned the house got sick. His illness was so severe he could no longer breathe. She asked Elijah, Why, prophet, have you come to me to confront me with my sin and kill my son? He said to her, Hand me your son. Now notice again, it's still not her faith yet. Many months have gone by, and now her son is dying. And she still hasn't completely bought into Yahweh yet. Because she's saying, Look, you're just like Baal now. You're shoving my sin in my face, and now you're killing my husband. This whole providing me flour was a sick, twisted thing to lead to my son's death, which is just like the Israelites in the wilderness said that God saved us just to kill us. But Moses' theme is continuing on. So he said to her, hand me your son. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him down on his bed. Then he called out to Yahweh. Notice he called out to Yahweh. O Yahweh, my God, are you also bringing disaster on this widow I am staying with by killing her son? He stretched out over the boy three times and called out to Yahweh, O Yahweh, my God, please let this boy's breath return to him. Yahweh answered Elijah's prayer. The boy's breath returned to him, and he lived. Elijah took the boy, brought him down from the upper room in the house, and handed him to his mother. Elijah then said, See, your son is a lie. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a prophet and that Yahweh really does speak through you. Now this is incredible. This is the first resurrection ever recorded. And notice that God didn't tell him to raise the boy. Elijah asked for a resurrection. 
And there's almost a little bit of hubris, hubris there for him demanding it. But at the same time, God responds and gives it to him. This is a very rare occasion for God to answer a specific demand like that. And so he raises the boy from the grave. Now, the whole idea of lying on him would be our modern-day equivalent of somebody dying of hypothermia, and you're like lying on them to transfer your body heat to them. This is almost that idea of sharing your life with them. And the fact that he lays down on him three times and gets back up is the idea of three is the number of redemption in the ancient world. So he's redeeming the boy, but it's this idea of going into the grave and pulling him out. Just like a knot would go into the grave and pull Baal out, God is going to the grave with Elijah and pulling the boy out of the grave. Three times is the idea of redeeming. So he's redeeming the boy back from the grave. And what it shows you is, once again, Yahweh is superior to Baal. Because Baal doesn't die and go into the grave. Baal goes in the grave alive. And he needs his wife to get him out of the grave. And then he ends up back there again. Where this time, this boy literally died. And Yahweh went into the grave and pulled the boy out. And he didn't need the help from some bride god. And he was able not just to pull a living person out of the grave, he was able to pull a dead person out of the grave. And this way, Yahweh once again shows his superiority. Why Baal still lies in the ground, alive. Yahweh, meanwhile, is pulling little boys who are truly dead out of the grave and Baal's own territory. And just like the gods of Egypt being defeated in the ten plagues, Yahweh is defeating the god of Baal in these judgments. And so these are the ten plagues, so to speak. But instead of them being plagued on people, they're blessings for the widow. And this is what God is showing. And then her faith truly is there. Because she says, now I know. Yahweh is above all their gods. But here's the other thing. There's a new theme that's going to be introduced in the book of Kings. And that is the upper theme. We're going to see Elijah on a hill with Mount Carmel, then another hill later in 2 Kings. We're going to see an upper room kind of an idea. And the upper room and the hills are going to become like the cosmic mountain. They are the new Mount Sinai, so to speak. And so Elijah is taking the boy up the cosmic mountain to God. And God is raising the boy on the cosmic mountain, and then he brings him back down the cosmic mountain to the widow. And the idea is that, remember in the ancient world, the cosmic mountain, the gods, is restricted from humans. Yet Elijah the prophet and this boy is allowed to go up on the mountain and receive life from God. And you're going to see this theme of being on top of something or in an upper room that shows up a lot. And that's the significance of the upper room discourse with Jesus later too. The idea is that there's this cosmic mountain idea. And so this is the idea that's being painted here. And so Yahweh is showing his superiority over Baal, just like he did over the gods of Egypt with Moses. And Elijah is the new Moses. Elijah is the new Moses, and the widow is the new chosen people. 